Hi, it's Guy here. Welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. Episode, um, what is it? Episode 37 uh, this time. And actually, episode 37 and the last one for a little while. Um, Creative Forces uh, is taking a little break. Uh, I'm taking a little break for a few weeks. Uh, that's because my wife, Sarah, is uh, giving birth, believe it or not, to our second child tomorrow so that's the day after this is published the 5th of july so i think it's probably wise to uh take away one of the things the many things that i'm busying myself with at the moment uh for a little while while we uh adjust to baby number two <laughs> so wish me luck uh i'm gonna need it it's gonna be several weeks of and months probably of hunkering down and hoping for the best but it should be fun, and obviously it'll be well worth it. Um, so yeah, this is the last episode for a while. Uh, so hope you've enjoyed the 36 episodes previous to this, and this being the 37th, hope you enjoy this one too, because this is a great interview. Uh, I really, really enjoyed doing this one. This is John Nicholson, someone who I've whose work I've admired for a long time, been a regular reader of his column for Football 365 for a long time now. I love his view on the world, his view on life and his view on football too. But he is a football writer, novelist and web entrepreneur. He was born in Hull and raised in Stockton-on-Tees. And John's enjoyed a really wide-ranging career, which you'll hear about in the interview. It includes setting up the online t-shirt businesses, DJTs and t-shirt, T-shirts 365, submitting that weekly column, as I mentioned, for Football 365 for almost two decades. And he's now written 16 novels. Um, he wrote a book about football, We Ate All the Pies, in 2010, which was longlisted for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year. He's been shortlisted for Writer of the Year by the Football Sporters Federation. And along the way, he's lived all over the world in over 20 locations, including the Black Isle in Scotland and Laguna Beach in California. And in this really honest, I have to thank John for his honesty in this interview, it's really... Uh, fascinating stuff that we talk about, particularly about his early life. He's also very funny about some of the twists and turns that he's had in his career. He also talks about his love of rock and roll, of vinyl, Middlesbrough FC. Uh, we talk a little bit about just the day we spoke, uh, Middlesbrough got a new manager, so we talk about that a bit at the start. He also talks about how he fell into writing professionally by accident. And also, amongst all the other stuff which i hope you enjoy listening to he tells me how he found out he's related to william the conqueror well i feel like i've got to ask you as a borough fan about the breaking news this morning that you have a new manager and not just any new manager either you've got jonathan woodgate how do you feel yeah, i'm really pleased about it actually i really um middlesbrough such a a local club in the sense that it has such a an identity in the region and um, I know that probably everybody who supports a football club likes somebody from the area to manage it, if it's all possible. Mm. Um, and obviously, Woodgate's from Middlesbrough. And um, uh, so, but I feel as if it really works, it's a really great fit for Middlesbrough because a lot of people, and I think Pulis is one of these, don't really get the area. And uh, I don't blame them for not really getting the area. It's quite a difficult area to get. <laughs> it's a very small area. It's quite insular in some ways. But it has a sort of... Um, it has a, a distinct character, which Woodgate will in, just will get. And uh, he'll also, because he's been working with the youth side, he'll bring uh, younger players through. Um, mm. And I think he'll be more creative and more interesting. It was deathly under Pulis. 
And you can only Pulis can only survive as a manager if the football is winning. Mm. Uh, it'll be awful football, but if it's winning, then people will tolerate it. But when it's not, then it's just like, <laughs> what am I paying money to watch this yeah. format? Punch myself in the face instead, you know. <laughs> you say Woodgate will get the character. So what is that character, do you think? I think it is a desire for a good time. Um, uh, we, you know, we're very much a, a kind of race of people who want to live for now because tomorrow we may be dead. <laughs> um, I think that's a legacy of our sort of Celtic uh, hard industry, Celtic hearts and hard industry. Yeah, and I think also we are kind of notoriously arsy <laughs> and uh, and kind of grumpy and uh, cynical. Uh, but really, that's what <laughs> what we love about it is that we're not sort of happy clappy. Really, we yeah. kind of look at everything through a slightly raised eyebrow. <laughs> and uh, I think that will get is is a good pick. Whether it'll be any, whether it'll work or not, who knows? Yeah. And what's beautiful about the championship, I think, is that you can't tell in advance of any season who's going to win it. Nobody would have thought Norwich would have won it last year. No. Fourteenth finish the previous season. Absolutely nobody give them a prayer to, to actually win the league. So, you know, anything can happen. And I think that's that's how football should be, really. Yeah, I've got to admit, I've always had a, I'm really pleased for Woodgate because I've always had a real soft spot for him. I think it's because he was such a cultured centre-half and he seemed ahead of his time then and he still seems like he was... Well, looking back, he was very much ahead of his time. But also, he, he just... He was so unlucky with injuries... He had that, you know, that stint at Real Madrid, which could have been incredible, but turned into a bit of a nightmare. Even though he's a bit of a cult hero at Madrid, still yeah. I think. But you know, it, it just fate seemed to be against him his whole career after that real purple patch at Leeds when he was really young. Yeah, he did. It's funny. It's, it's really interesting because as you get older, you know, as you know, the years seem to fly by. Yeah, it doesn't really seem that long since he was a player. But of course, he was part of that fantastic Leeds side that got to the European semi-final. Mm. And uh, he was very cultured. He was. He's a real ball-playing centre-half mm. in a way which was untypical at the time, but now which would be very fashionable, really, I guess. So, mm. yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. He's, you know, word from within the club is that he's a very good man-manager. Mm. Um, and I think for his first job, Steve Gibson's always taken chances on managers. It doesn't always work out. I mean, Tony Mowbray was a, uh, remains a club legend and a man whom I think all of us have a tremendous respect for, but it really didn't work out when he was manager. And he left, not with a cloud over his head at all, uh, it just didn't work out. So, you know, there's nothing inevitable about it, but I think it's good. Mm. In many ways, it's much more... I like it better than if it's just another merry-go-round appointment. You know, you get Mark Hughes or somebody. In yeah. That would be so depressing, wouldn't it? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think it's, it's it's a good way to start a new season. Yeah. Well, you you grew up on Teesside, didn't you? That's why you're a Middlesbrough fan. But you didn't. You, you were born in Hull, is that right? That's right. I was born in Hull in 1961, and uh, we moved to Teesside in 69. Because my dad was um, worked for Freightliners, which for... Uh, uh, younger people was the uh, British Rails um, company, which sort of shifted stuff around on the railways. So he would sell space on wagons that would fly up and down the country, and he relocated from Hull, where he'd started at Paragon Station, to uh, yeah, to Stockton, uh, which is where we grew up. So I spent from the age of eight to eighteen there, and then I left home at eighteen, and uh, yeah, never never moved back really. And were your mum and dad originally from Hull? Yeah, all we just come from a long line of people from Hull, going right back to the. I did all the ancestry, and uh, oh, yeah. going right back to the seventeen hundreds. Wow, However, what did you find? 
Well, it was interesting. On my dad's side, um, uh, there was a branch off that way, that went down to Staffordshire, and um, they were called Plant, which is a construction of Plantagenet. Right. And uh, I, I fold it all the way back, and it turns out I'm related to William the Conqueror. <laughs> That's not bad. It's all right, isn't it? Yeah. Well, get off my fucking land. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, we, we even traced it back. I mean, once you, uh, there's a, a term in, um, in genealogy called a, a, um, a key, an unlocker or a key hole or something. I can't remember what the term is now. Mm. But anyway, basically, it's once you unlock that uh, and you relate it to royalty, it all connects up. And it's not that I'm it's particularly rare. There's thousands and thousands of people <laughs> are related to all these people. Uh, but I went right back to the Norse kings of the 10th century. Amazing. So, so do, you, yeah. do you have the, uh, you know, the rights to... A- an obscure title or a piece of land somewhere? Well, I'd like to. I was thinking King of Scotland might be quite good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or at least Lord of Teesside. That would be quite yeah, good. Yeah, Lord of Teesside sounds good. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. But anyway, so no, it's interesting to that. But yeah, we're all all the, all the family from Hull, really. And right. um, yeah. And what did your mum do? My mother was uh, a nurse before she got married. Um, but back in those days, once you got married, you women gave up their jobs, which, you know, now seems incredibly ar- arcane, but, they, mm. but that's what it was. And she was uh, our mum, and uh, she was worked at home, and uh, that was it, really. Unfortunately, she suffered very badly from ill health from my mid-teens onwards, mm. and uh, which eventually degenerated into paranoid schizophrenia, and uh, which was uh, when I was sort of 17, 18, 19, mm. and uh, sh- they gave her electric shock treatments. Right. Uh, which is as brutal uh, as it sounds. And um, that really changed who she was. Uh, it took away all of the voices and all of the paranoia, but it didn't take, but it took a lot of her with it too. Um, so, yeah, and she suffered in the health the rest of her life, really. She died at 69. Oh, so that um, must have been, a, that must have been tra- hugely traumatic for you and, and your dad, yeah, I guess. And Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was, I was, it's funny because before I was uh, thinking of talking to you, I was just making a few notes. And mm. uh, it's only in subsequent years, because I'll say I'm 57 now, 58 in a couple of months. Mm. And um, I think it's only as I've got older that I've realised really that the trauma of all of that, I just swallowed it down uh, with a mixture of bravado, alcohol, um, and uh, I shut off my emotions to it just mm. so it wouldn't hurt me. And uh, and I think that you know that took me probably thirty five or forty years to really understand what I'd done at that time because mm. I just kind of laughed it off. Uh, I know that sounds incredibly callous, um, but it was the only way I could really deal with it. But when you've got your mother's tearing, uh, ripping, literally ripping a cuckoo out of a cuckoo clock out of the wall, shouting, "The Russians are listening to me," mm. then you've got to see the funny side of that, really. Uh, and it's it was. You know that I took that route to deal with it, really. And I didn't. You've got to remember, in 1979, 1980, um, the health professionals do very little about mental illness, let alone mm. working class lads like me. I mean, we just didn't know anything about that way, anything to do with that. So, you know, we didn't. I didn't know what to say or do about it. I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't have any place to put it. All I knew was that mother was no longer functioning as a regular human being and was doped up to the eyeballs in a psychiatric ward so i just had to get on with life you know and dad was a very uncommunicative type of person very typical man of his generation born in the 20s you know very emotionally repressed 
so you know by the time i was 18 i was kind of put adrift really mm. um we were never a close family i've got an older brother who is uh, six years older than me, who is currently in his last year of being the chair of Revenue Scotland. Right. Which means it's impossible for collecting all the taxes in the devolved government. Okay. Which is quite amazing, really. Yeah. Um, so, quite yeah, a different so was, career path from yours, too. Oh, man. I mean, we don't see eye to eye. We haven't spoken for many years. Um, which is a shame. I've made, tried to make some rapprochements, hmm. but to no avail. And... Um, he took a science route and was a professor of geology at Auckland University for many years in New Zealand and uh, Robert Gordon in Aberdeen and, you know, he took a very academic career. I don't quite know how he managed to end up as chair of Revenue Scotland, but <laughs> anyway, he did. And, um, and yeah, and I went very much the other way. I went the arts route. Mm. I went the hippie route <laughs> and the not having the job route. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that's probably two reactions to the same upbringing two very different reactions yeah. you know i guess very as you were saying though that you know the 70s were so you know we're all encouraged to to talk about everything now aren't we and there's many positive elements to that for for lots of people but it, it just wasn't the case back then was it people didn't talk about stuff like this no absolutely not it was a stigma to it and um it's just nobody understood we literally didn't understand it you know hmm. so it almost, and it probably sounds incredulous now, but when she started to suffer, particularly from the paranoid schizophrenia, I kind of thought she was putting it on. Mm. And that's, as I say, I know that sounds really callous now, but I kind of thought it was like an attention-seeking thing. And um, But that's just out of ignorance. I mean, I was a kid, what did I know, you know? So, um, but things weren't good, really, from the age of about 13. My mum and dad didn't really get on, I don't think. And uh, I don't think that, I mean, they did their best, I guess, as people of that generation did. But I was pretty much left to, to the amazement of Dawn, my partner. Because <laughs> uh, so used to work, cause we met when we were 18, and we've been together now for 39 years. <laughs> and um, she, we used to go around the house, and I would swear in front of my mother and father, uh, maybe effing and blinded. And um, uh, she would say, how can you swear in front of your parents? I said, oh, they don't care, nobody cares. <laughs> and I didn't care, I was, I was out drinking when I was 15. Right. And I just put the hands off the wheel, really. So, you know, I had a little bit of a, uh, a fractured kind of uh, teenage years, really. But, you know, not unusually. I mean, it happened to a lot of kids. Mm. So they kind of left you to it, you think, because of yeah. because of what was going on with your mum? Yeah. yeah, I mean, basically, they didn't care. I don't whether they cared or not, they weren't able to... You know, they weren't functioning really as as parents would normally function. Mm. I don't really. I'm not. I'm not bitter at it or anything. I, I, as an older person, I can see the difficulties really. And well, you know, from the you've got to remember, they came from these really rough backgrounds and really poor working class families in the twenties and thirties. And, and again, it's only in later years. Because my dad was eighteen. At eighteen, he was called up to fight in the war. Mm. And that's only in later years I've realised particularly when I started writing novels, that he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder all of his life. Mm. And why he was so emotionally repressed, wouldn't talk about the war, but was obsessed with the war all the same. Mm. Would watch uh, any programme about it, would read uh, voraciously about it, but trying to get him to open up about what happened was impossible. Did he ever talk about it? I mean, that generation just never do. I mean, mm. that's a really common thing. I hear people all the time saying, uh, you know, their parents just never spoke about what they went through. But he was 18 in 1940. 
He'd never been outside of Yorkshire, let alone outside of the country. Mm. And the sh- after two or three months training in Scarborough, they shipped him out to the North African desert to fight Rommel. And can you imagine? I mean, you know, he didn't have any experience of the world. He didn't have experience of Britain, let alone anywhere else. And uh, he was given medals. He was a, a sighter on for a, as a gunner. So it was his job to, to sight where the shells would land. Mm. And he won medals for it. I don't know what sort of medals. But, <clears throat> excuse me, because at the end of the war, he threw them all away. Did he? He was so disgusted with it all. Huh. And, uh, did he ever explain he, why he did that? He said, "He said war was disgusting, and he didn't want, and he didn't want medals for doing what he'd done, which was which by which I took to mean killing people." Yeah, and the 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 because obviously the, the, he was at the uh, famous battle called the Battle of El Alamein, and uh, which the, which the, the Allies won, but after that they'd captured loads of um, of Germans, and he told me because he only talked about it once when I was doing a project at school on that battle, mm. and uh, in the third year at school. And uh, he said, with, they brought in loads of captured German soldiers. He said, I always remember what he said. He said, they were all kids like me. He said, they were just scared shitless and wanted to go home. And it, it, I think he just saw them all as being fodder for other people's games, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, I, and I can understand why he didn't want to keep a medal for being an accurate sighter mm. when, um, uh, when that just meant he'd kill those people. It's staggering, and, isn't it, to think about what they went through at such a young age. Oh, God, man. And then, you know, you think he comes home aged, uh, after the war, comes home aged 23, and it's just like, well, thanks for that, Eric. Get, uh, go and get yourself a job now. <laughs> it's just like, uh, you know, like nobody to talk to about it, nothing. Just swallow it all down. And uh, I wish that, cause he died in 1987, um, age 65, and I, I wish that I'd... Uh, understood this. I don't think he still don't think he would have talked about it, to be honest. But no. I wish I'd understood more why he was as he was. Um, but maybe that's a common thing as you get older. You wish that you'd understood the adult world more than you could possibly have actually understood when you were a kid. You know? Yeah, because it's, uh, it's kind of impossible to understand, isn't it? At that age, all the complexities and all the years that have passed and all the things that have happened to to your parents, particularly because they they often don't tell you these things, do they? For for whatever reason, yeah. they also seem really old. I mean, yeah. my dad died. He was he was an old dad. He was thirty nine when I was born, and he died at uh, sixty five, and I was twenty six when mm. he died. And um, now I'm from fifty eight next birthday, so I'm only seven years after the how old he was when he carved it. Mm. And I thought I can't <laughs> believe that it just seems so old. <laughs> I feel so young and sprightly. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It is a weird thing. I think our relationships with our parents, be they good, bad, or indifference, shape so much of of your life. I think really, yeah. you know, you can't help it not be the case. But uh, in my case, it was very much made me very independent from an early age, yeah. and uh, very much live in my own head, uh, which um, as in later life has come to be very <laughs> useful. Really. <laughs> so, what were those teenage years like? Then you say you were out drinking and doing all sorts of stuff, and kind of left to your own devices. Yeah. So, what what were you? interested in what were you really like excited by my big passion in life then as in now was in uh, rock music mm. and I, I started collecting records at the age of 13 um i've got i'm sitting here from my living room which uh dawn always says looks like a record library <laughs> uh, there's six over six thousand two hundred albums here wow. and uh, i just collect that. i just love rock music 
um, um, heavy rock music, anything which had a guitar solo, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and that was always my passion. So rock and roll, uh, drinking, that was another very big passion of mine, <laughs> which I would do on my own. I would love to drink on my own. I would, at age 16, 16, 17, I would go to local pubs and I would sit with my uh, set texts for my English exams. I would read them, read books in the pubs while getting drunk on lager and lime. And uh, on, on my own, and um, that's that. That probably reflects where I was in my head. Mm. I was a bit of a loner, but I mean, outwardly, I was very, I, I was very um, gregarious. I suppose people would have thought I wasn't, uh, you know, an introverted type of person. But really, if I had to choose between being in a crowd of people and being on my own, I would have chose being on my own. Really, why do you think you had that desire to be in the pub at that age? You know, to to do your English work, but to do it to do it there. Yeah. Well, I, I've since thought about this a lot because when I wrote the novels, I I, I made Nick Geimer the protagonist essentially me, mm. or at least his whole um, history and his internal monologue is is me, and um, so I had to think about that quite a bit, and I realised really what what was happening there was twofold. One. I was somewhere that was warm and uh, and 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 felt welcoming in a pub. And it was things going on, and it wasn't hostile or cold, hmm. or there wasn't people ripping cuckoos out of clocks. Yeah. Uh, so it was uh, that was the first thing. So it was a, 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 I felt like a safe haven. But the secondly, I think it was literally drink alcohol. Uh, was like my first real uh, love in life. It was my first friend. And um, I think that this isn't uncommon. Again, I've read this quite a lot. A lot of people go through this where you feel when you have a, come from a very insecure or how you perceive to be an insecure background and you think, you I'm on my own now. You know, this is just me against the world now. Mm. The, the drink becomes a friend. It becomes puts its arm around you and says, I'll always be here for you. I'll never let you down. You know, I, I'll always make you feel better than you do before you're, you know, before you start drinking, I'll make you feel better. So, uh, and I think that was what it was really. I used to hate having to leave the pub and come back home. Mm. I always remember once. It sounds a bit. Uh, uh, it sounds like it's from a different era, really. But in 1979, Stockton Market was be on every Wednesday, and um, uh, because the market was on, there was uh, licensing laws allowed some pubs to stay open all afternoon. Um, and because of the, it's just at two o'clock normally, but you could drink all afternoon, which was brilliant. So I, uh, on the Wednesdays, we had um, a kind of drama class, which I was involved in at a local arts centre. And when that finished, some of us would go uh, to a pub, which is now called famously called the Pound Pub, <laughs> where everything is a pound. Uh, and um, but back then was the White Hart, and we used to go in the back room there and drink Newcastle Exhibition all afternoon. And all the kind of kids who had a nice home to go home to went home at five o'clock, and I would just sit there drinking. And mm. I, I remember once coming home about half seven, I was really drunk, really, and um, I just was so upset, and I was sort of crying on the way home. And uh, like that seemed like quite normal to me back then. Uh, and now when I look at it as a sort of having a happy, stable life, <laughs> I think, you poor sod, mm -hmm. you know? Like, you really don't know. I mean, you've, how can you know when you're a kid? You've got nothing to, to gauge it against. You just know that your life's like this, and this is all you know. And uh, so, you know, I, that happened more than once, really. And uh, I saw later as I got on again to, to writing the novels uh, and was doing a bit of kind of self-analysis, I realised that from about that age of 15, 
I was actually periodically really depressed, mm. but nobody knew what depression was then. Nobody knew what it looked like uh, or anything, but I was clearly was <laughs> clinically depressed. And, um, and it came and it went. Uh, but, you know, when it came heavily, that's probably when I was drinking really heavily mm. to try and you know, self-medicate. So, yeah, it all sounds like a tragic life, really, but somehow I caught. <laughs> <laughs> and is that when, you know, you, you mentioned that it felt like you against the world. Is that how you, that's how you felt at that time, kind of thing? You know, you were just on your own out there. Yes, yeah, it did. Again, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that for you mm. um, in that way. But, yes, that's definitely what it was. I just felt, because Keith, my older brother, was six years older than me. He was away at college doing his thing. You know, because we weren't a close family, it wasn't like... I could lean on him, and um, so yeah, it was just I was it. So that's why that's why drink becomes um, an important part of your life is because you need a friend, and you go into a pub and buy a pint or whatever it is you're drinking, and uh, then you're with your mate again. Hmm. That's how, like, the best way I could explain it, really. Hmm. And how did you then? Do you remember discovering rock music and that whole process of yeah. falling in love with it? How did that happen? Well, that happened because. Um, one great thing that my mum and dad did before they went um, their separate ways was uh, they used to buy all the Beatles albums hmm. when they came out in the early to mid 60s. And uh, so we had all the first up to help. We had all of those and I would play them all the time, you know, aged four, five, six. And hmm. we had all the singles as well. And, um, and then they stopped buying them when Revolver came out. Uh, no, when Rubber Soul came out, sorry, because they said that they'd gone all weirdy on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and from an early age, I thought, that sounds good. That <laughs> I fancy some of that. <laughs> so, yeah, so about 15 years later, I went all weirdy on drugs as well. You know? But anyway, but uh, basically, they inculcated a love of uh, music into me from an early age. So, um, yeah, I got, um, uh, and from sort of 70, 71, I would get, an album for Christmas because they were expensive, relatively. Mm. And then uh, I got, um, I bought a band on the run by Wings with my own money <laughs> uh, when I was thirteen, and that was it. Really, I was just off after that point. Third album I bought was an incredible record called "The Inner Mounting Flame" by the Mahi Vishnu Orchestra, <laughs> who are uh, were the jazz fusion innovators. And it's absolutely wild guitar music, and it's just incredible music. I mean, John McLaughlin's the he used to play with Miles Davis and stuff. I don't know how or why I got that. I don't know what <laughs> made me get it. But it's absolutely, it's incredibly sophisticated and wild. Yeah. And that that just turned me on to all of that. So, yeah, I was off and running straight away. I mean, I just, I had a friend, Russell Hopper, God rest his soul, um, who were, was his only child and his mum and dad ran their own business and they had a bit of money. And he always got loads of records. So I always taped them all. And uh, he helped expand my horizons. Sadly, he just died a couple of years ago. Oh. Uh, it's very upsetting. And um, yeah, so I, I just, it, it became an all-encompassing thing. Uh, I would sit, I loved everything about it, you know, and I would sit and um, uh, I would make up, like just big lists of tracks that I like best by certain bands. And it's all the things that you do when you're an obsessive teenager, really, mm. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And I just love them as works of art and as, as um, you know, have as items in themselves. I think. Do you still have it's those little, first ones that you bought? Yeah, yeah, I still have uh, <laughs> first. Yeah, I think I've got. Well, I, say, I had I had a big collection by '89, and we were so skint in '89 that I sold them. At, even saying those words hurts, and uh, <laughs> and I sold them a lot of them, or most of them. Some of them I did keep, but uh, but so I've been building it back up since then. If I had, I would have had a, a collection in excess of ten thousand by now. <laughs> 
which would have made me even happier than I am today. <laughs> um, but yeah, I still got the best of status quo, which was bought for me for Christmas, the one on pie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I've still got lots of stuff around. Yeah, it's it's funny really because I think the collecting is is part of the insecurity. I, again, I, something I've dwelled on for quite a while. Mm. It's, people go, there are, I find in life, there are people who are collectors and there are people who look at collectors and go, why are you a collector? <laughs> <laughs> and people either get it or they don't get it. Now, I think I collect because it's a, it's about having a sense of permanence yeah. in your life. You have, um, you know, again, it's a bit like having the drink as a friend. You have records are there for you. They're your kind of, you know, they're your wonder wall, <laughs> like. Yeah. And I just think that um, having them uh, materially, because I have so many, people go, well, you can't play them all. Of course you can't play them all. I have thousands of records here. I've never dropped the needle on at all. But that's not the point. It's having them. It's owning them. Do you and think it's, it's been sort of part of a tribe as well? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, Guy. Um, the tribalism of it, that gave me something to belong to. Hmm. You know, to be a long-haired rock and roller, that was something to be. Hmm. And, um, and to be a bit of a kind of freaky hippie kind of guy. Uh, that was that was very much why I identified with. Though I don't know why. That's the other thing. This is a great mystery about it. Is why do we end up? Why does something come into focus and you think that's great? I love that. I want to be part of that. And why do other things not? Yeah. You know, I, I can't really explain that. I, I, th- I think it connect, must connect to something that's innate to you, um, uh, and, to, and innate to the type of mind you've got. You know, I've talked about this thing with this. Were a friend of mine. I don't know if you know a band called Tangerine Dream. No. Um, well, they're a, a German electronic band who came out in the 70s. Uh, and uh, they, they produced early synthesizer music. It's all done through analog synthesizers. Mm. And it's essentially just sort of low hums, a few bits of vibration, and some plinky plonky. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> they actually had hit records in, in the UK. They yeah. had like top 10 albums. But there are, there's music like that. It either fits the way the shape of your brain, or it doesn't. Yeah. If it doesn't fit the shape of your brain, it just goes. This is just like sounds like electricity <laughs> being amplified. Yeah. And uh, those of us who like it nod and say yes, and that's why we like it. <laughs> and um, I, I think it's you know there is this kind of synergy between the way your brain is and the music that appeals to you. And uh, where that comes from, I don't know, but I think it's very really interesting. Yeah, because when you connect it, with music, it's it's involuntary, really, isn't it? It's, it's not a choice. It is. That's a great point, actually. Yeah, it isn't a choice. Yeah, that's a really excellent point, actually, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't really because I think, yeah, actually, that's a really that really resonates with me because if you think about it, in the modern day, we're kind of trained to be consumers and to to almost be sold things, mm. uh, and so you you're kind of like. You know, you kind of market things, but you can't choose, you know, so you can, I don't know, you can market a sofa to you, but I'm not sure you can be marketed music. You either get it or you don't. You either feel it or you don't. Hmm. I don't know. But then again, as Dawn often says to me, you just overthink everything on Massively. So, <laughs> yeah. so, they, um, so lots of people, they like music, but, you know, they just hum a little tune on the radio and then they're done with it. He says, you, you've got to analyse it totally. And it becomes a kind of religion to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I've had a similar experience. I mean, I'm, I like lots of different types of music, but I remember as a teenager, I uh, just some, I heard some like, funk, like James Brown, that style of music yeah. for the first time, and and a yeah. couple of my friends, and we've been obsessed with it ever since, and have 
lot, far too many records. Again, probably loads that will never, uh, the needle will never hit the the vinyl again. But the um, you know just the, being obsessed with a style of music, or, and it was very involuntary. It was just like this is incredible. I don't know why, yeah. but I love it. Yeah. Do you, so do you actually collect vinyl? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I've on and off. I've bought lots of vinyl. I kind of buy them in bursts where I yeah. get a bit obsessed and then stop for a bit and then buy load again and then stop for a bit. So yeah, I've, so, I've actually just had, funnily enough, some shelves, new shelves installed in our front room and I'm later today, I've got probably about 50 uh, records on the shelf, which I had out anyway, but I'm going to go up into the loft and get the whole lot. So uh, they're going on the shelf wow. later today. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Oh man! Well, it's beautiful. I mean, it, as I say, you think that it's music, it's art, it's history, it's culture. Yeah, you know, and that's all just from a twelve-inch record in your hand. You know, do you buy singles as well? Uh, yeah, not so much now, but I still do buy some singles. Yeah, because there's a couple of uh, labels in America that are still churning out like um, really amazing sort of funk and soul recorded on analog equipment. And they releases a lot of stuff on forty five, so yeah, I do. St- I do still buy some stuff from them. Fantastic. Well, we're obviously kindred spirits here, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I love James Brown as well. Anything that's on the one, yeah, uh, that 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 always gets me. I think the worst thing uh, about modern dance music is that a lot of it isn't on the one. And yeah. I think it has to be on the one to work for me. But um, anyway, have you seen yeah. that amazing Bootsy Collins video where, on YouTube where he talks about the one? Where it's, it's yeah, James, yeah. James Brown taught him about the one. That's an amazing yeah. video, which I share as much as I can whenever anyone asks me yeah. about funk and soul. I just say, watch this. Oh man, it's amazing. I, I suppose you must be into uh, George Clinton and Parliament and well, Funkadelic. Funnily enough, not as much because it, I, I don't know. But I always lo- I was more the sort of James Brown, the meters if you like, oh, the very sort of, you know, the strip yeah. back, it's just yeah. the musicians, you know, nailing yeah. the groove, basically. Whereas I, I always found Parliament and Funkadelic went, was a bit more, I don't know, it was it was less about, yeah, the groove was still there, but it was less raw, I guess. Yeah. No, well, it's more sloppy, really, isn't it? Yeah. You know, isn't, they have an album called Cosmic Slop, in fact, <laughs> I think, which true. probably describes the music. Uh, yeah. But I mean, I mean, I, I love all that. Actually, I think the, the brilliant thing about that is how it, it combined into kind of rock music with things like yeah. Maggot Brain. There's yeah. just lots of guitar, but it was funk as well. And then it was soul a bit, but they, I, I just loved all of that. Yeah, yeah. it was a real suit. Yeah, yeah, they really but sort of brought the yeah. genres together, didn't they, in many ways? And, oh, and okay, so, well, yeah, sort of threw the genres out the window, really. Uh, anybody that releases an album called The Electric Spanking of Babies deserves, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some recognition in life. Absolutely. Uh, so were you playing, and I've seen a video of you playing guitar, were you playing guitar at that time or was, did that come later? Well, I got, um, in about uh, 75 or 6, I got bought, and my mum dad helped me buy, I should say, uh, a, a um, satellite guitar which was made in japan and was made almost entirely out of plastic <laughs> and it was terrible uh, i had a really high action and i tried to learn on that and i struggled quite a bit to learn on that though i did uh, uh just jump forward a bit i did uh, use it for a notorious gig 
uh, with my pal Phil Valgado at uh, Newcastle Poly when I went to college. Right. And they uh, formed a, a society called the Anti-Music Society, and our purpose was just to make noise in public with electronic <laughs> instruments. <laughs> and uh, this, by this time, the satellite guitar was malfunctioning. Uh, the um, the jack socket would just cut in and out. Right. So you'd be playing it, and it'd come on, and it would go off and come on and go off. And it was really disruptive. I um, mean, you couldn't play it. But it was ideal for the anti-music society. So yeah. we would get up on stage and start playing, like, literally atonal noise. And the guitar was just cutting in out at random. And it seemed to perfectly fit the art form of noise creation. And uh, so it came in useful for one gig, and one gig only. Um, <laughs> but obviously got bottled off. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was just understandable, because we were hurting people with that noise. Man. Wow. Were you, on a, uh, were you on a bill with other bands as well, or was it just, no, no, just it was you? No, we were headlining, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic. Great times, those. Brilliant. So but, you, uh, were, you were playing in a band, or you were trying to play at that point? Yeah, yeah. Then I sort of got a better quality guitar, and uh, I got an Ibanez. And, um, yeah, we, we played uh, for quite a bit, for ages, really. Um, rehearsed more than we played at college. <laughs> and I sort of dabbled in music ever since, but... Um, uh, but I'd, I just think um, uh, probably being in a band really wasn't going to be for me, really. I am think I'm just too much. Uh, I'd, I quickly learned, really, that I I, uh, I like I like being not on my own because I was always with Dawn, but I liked us just being the two of us. I couldn't, I, mixing in big crowds and stuff doesn't work with me, really. Mm. Doesn't, I just I find it tiring and de- slightly depressing. And I was obviously at the time still suffering from depression and undiagnosed, and that was part of all of that, really. Um, so yeah, so we played around. I still love it, and I still got my guitar here, mm. and I would I would pick it up in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, the lifestyle doesn't suit me. You know, no. it doesn't. It's quite addictive to me, really. So you know, you've got as you, I think if you can learn as you get older, uh, the situations that make you happy and the ones that don't, then that is a great lesson you can teach yourself. Yeah. And stay all the unhappy situations yeah know? and that, that that's how you find peace i think yeah did you enjoy the performing at all oh god yeah but you see i've always been see, like a lot of shy kids and um a lot of quite introverted kids i've got a really extrovert side as well mm. and uh so i have what don calls the, the gobshite in me <laughs> uh, which is the first one to speak up and um you know uh, so yeah i am and i i did consider um going to a drama college when i done my a-levels i went to newcastle poly to do english and history but i did think about going to york to do drama uh, because i i was in the uh, school sixth form school play and i really enjoyed all of that i just enjoyed being around people like that and hmm. uh, that's what i was, I was got the art center Dovecot art center in stockton as well and that was fun um uh, to an extent, it was a bit creepy, weird. Again, looking back on it, creepy, weird guys worked there <laughs> who, would, who had creepy, weird motivations for working there. Hmm. But uh, anyway, um, it, it was it was something I thought I could do. I probably should have done, really. I should have pursued it a little bit more because it gives vent to all of the things that are in your head, hmm. which you would dwell on when you're in your introverted moments, but then you, you get given a way to express a lot of that. And I think that would have been healthy for me, yeah. Mm. So, I've done, I mean, nowadays I do book talks and things quite frequently, and I have no problem standing up in front talking to a room of people at all. That doesn't bother me in the slightest, uh, yeah. which is weird, because it's, it's the thing that everybody always says is the thing that terrifies them most of is public speaking, but I really like it. Um, I think so, it very yeah. much depends what you're talking about, doesn't it? Because if you're talking about something that... <laughs> you know, is very much you anyway, 
then yeah. it's, it's, I think it can make it much, much easier, can't it? It's, it's when you having to stand up and talk about something you're not 100% sure about, that's when I think, you know, it can be very difficult. Yeah, I think so. I think also um, I've found as I've got older, losing your ego, well, I, I, I don't know if everybody does, but I presume everybody does. As you get older, you tend to lose a lot of your ego, mm. uh, at least I have, and uh, it which just means I don't really care anymore. <laughs> so I think if, I, in, like, if you go to do a talk to 100 people and you mess it all up and you're becoming incoherent <laughs> just sitting there looking at the watch what's the worst that can happen yeah uh, so that that's how i approach it really whereas i think when i was younger and then once when we get on to talk about writing as well mm. i think this is mm. part of that is when i was younger i wanted to be the kind of performer or, yeah. or write that that i would want to go and see rather than just be who i am mm-hmm. and now that's yeah. a massive thing i think in all creative uh, endeavors is finding who you are and you know, and, and then being, if not content with it, work on that rather yeah. than just try to be something you're not. Uh, and I, I just tried to be something I wasn't for too many years, really. I think you're, you're absolutely right, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think as you, when you're younger, you're trying to, or you, you have role models, or you're often you're trying to be like somebody else, or you're trying to emulate somebody. Whereas, as you say, often you, the realization is as you get older that actually the sort of true creativity and the happiness you can find in it is just from being yourself and from finding what works for you. I, I think so, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, partly I think that's just experience of life mm. teaches you um, more about yourself. Uh, but also I think that um, it's inevitable when you're younger, when you say 20 or 25, you want to be, you know, you, you're more concerned with how people see you. And I think it's a natural thing as you get older to just think, well, I don't really mind anymore. I mean, I'm very fortunate in that I've had such a stable home life. I've been with Dawn for 39 years, mm. and um, you know, and she's been a great rock in my life, and uh, and also provides a, a great sounding wall for everything too. So, it's uh, I've been very fortunate in that sense. So I haven't had to, uh, I haven't had to sort of preen myself in public <laughs> in order to get a partner. You know, if you see yeah. what I mean. How did you so, and Dawn I mean, meet then? Well, we met at college. Oh, we've got a good meeting story. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, um, uh, I was going to see, uh, or she was going to see Thin Lizzy at Newcastle City Hall, uh, and I was going to see Wild Horses at the Poly. Uh, she's at Newcastle Poly. She was there as well, first year. And um, uh, uh, we met in the bar. We just got talking. Um, and she, uh, of course, and I was, <laughs> a bit of rock history for you. <laughs> Try not to fall asleep. Um, <laughs> Brian Robinson, who was in Wild Horses, had been in Thin Lizzy. Um, I'd recently left the Lizzie. Um, so it was weird that she was going to see the Lizzie and I was going to see the guy that had been in the Lizzie that right. night in the Prince. So anyway, we got talking and then we met up afterwards and uh, we went to see the uh, Wild Horses. Phil Linnett was standing just in front of us. Right. And uh, and I thought I would impress Dawn <laughs> by my ability to get on with internationally famous rock stars. Yeah. So I went up and asked uh, for his autograph and he just told me, feck off. <laughs> <laughs> so I slunk back, uh, a defeated man. <laughs> um, good effort. But, uh, yeah, it was good effort. I think Dawn appreciated the fact that I, I, I had a, I'd given it a go. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'd come back with service in my legs. <laughs> well, we, we, we met that night and we just we, we just went out for about nine months and we moved in together in March 81. Hmm. We met 2nd of May 80. Uh, it's great actually when you when you met at a gig because if you forget the uh, the date you met, you can just look it up on all the old gig <laughs> listings to see when Lizzie were playing at the city hall. And um, 
so yeah, uh, and we moved in together uh, in March of '81, and that was it. Well, yeah, we've been together since we never got married uh, because our mom, both our parents were divorced. Mm. Both were unhappy in marriage, this and they set a really bad example for us. Also, we were both hippies <laughs> by then, so we were we thought like we didn't need no no bit of paper from City Hall, man. Yeah, <laughs> just, that, was, that we were together. So yeah, so it's been amazing, really. And I what mean, does Dawn do? Dawn is one of the most um, uh, brilliant and yet annoying people you'll ever meet. <laughs> <laughs> in that she is brilliant at loads of different things. <laughs> so, um, just to give you an idea, all of because we've always worked together uh, in the same businesses. Yeah. Uh, so when we uh, were in the sort of mid eighties, Dawn uh, invented a uh, spinning wheel. She made a spinning wheel out of an old bike, uh, driftwood, and a sewing machine motor. And with that, it, she we used to um, we used to uh, card. That means. Um, comb fleeces and we used to spin wool we'd dye it with natural dyes we would knit, knit, we'd knit jumpers out of it on machines and we'd sell them in Edinburgh to craft shops for sort of 30 quid a go and mm. uh, that was the first thing we did and this is all just Dawn was a fashion student and uh, but she quit it because she hated all of the pretension that surrounded it mm. but she's great on a sewing machine she can do knitting uh, she taught herself how to uh, write websites in the but even in her late thirties, she taught herself how to write HTML mm. and wrote all of our websites for all of our businesses. Right. The moment she does uh, art prints, uh, which she sort of does kind of post impressionistic abstract kind of things, right. and um, they sell really well. She sells those all over the world. Fantastic. She just made jewellery. She taught herself how to do engraving. Uh, there's just not much she can't do, really. <laughs> and she's a singer as well. In fact, she played bass in one of our bands called Underground Picnic. And, <laughs> That's uh, a great that, band name. It's a great band name. Yeah, it is. And it probably describes pretty much what the music was like. It was <laughs> like a, a picnic underground. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that's what... Um, we've, we've always worked together on everything. You know, our, we've never. I've never had a job in my life. I've mm. never had a wage job we've always worked for ourselves always had our own businesses yeah and uh, it's driven largely by dawn's creativity and in the last sort of five or six ten years from my writing as yeah. well so so did you set because you had the t-shirt business haven't you? you've had two t-shirt business i think or you've been involved well, in them how did it well, how did those come about oh well this takes us up to 2000 and 2000 rather hmm. when i first started writing for football 365 hmm. um uh uh, at the time, Dawn was running, a, or not running a business, but she was producing uh, um, canvases uh, that were printed on that people could embroider. You know, you know, like these sewing kits that you see, and there'll be like all sorts of different patterns, and you can do cross stitch or, or tapestry and things on them. Yeah. And um, so she, we had the machinery to produce these, and uh, she said one day, "Why don't we do T-shirts for football three six five with footballers and such on?" Yeah. Long story short, we started doing that. That did really well from 2001 to uh, autumn of 2002. And uh, we were doing that, and it was ticking along great when we were making good money at that. Uh, and then Don said, uh, well, why don't we do this for ourselves with utilising all your knowledge of records and bands and musicians? So, and so we thought, okay, that's a good idea. So in 2000, October 2002, we started doing the DJTs, hmm. uh, and uh, that just took off massively. We sold DJTs in 2012. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, for very complicated circumstances, which, which are too boring really to go through, <laughs> we ended up taking possession of the company again uh, a year last February. Right. Because the guy that had bought it from us had been paying the installments for it, couldn't pay the remainder of the installments, poor lad. Uh, so anyway, so we took it back over. So, we, so essentially, we still run it now. Right. Um, uh, albeit in a, in a much less... Uh, intense way that we used to, yeah. So we still own it, we still do it, and it yeah. still takes up still a bit of money for us. Yeah. But we have so many other projects now that bring in income that we don't need it to be our sole focus the right. way it was back in the early two thousands. Yeah. So what did you do before then? Then when you left uh, college, what did you do after that? Oh well, uh, let, see, I left college in eighty two. I got my degree in eighty two. Hmm. Uh, by this time, I hadn't really been going very often. <laughs> right. We only had seven hours of lectures a week. Uh, and I only actually read three books all the way through in three years, but I got two two anyway, uh, <laughs> largely because either they were just giving them away, yeah. or because I, I have a kind of I have an ability to work out what people want to hear and then write that, um, <laughs> and I think that's what it was. Right. Uh, th- but this absence was largely due to a massive consumption of magic mushrooms over uh, about eighteen month period, because <laughs> right. uh, we were living in a flat in a. A, a grim part of the castle called Walker on Time, mm. which is as unromantic as it sounds, and uh, right by a field where magic mushrooms grew, and we used to pick them, and we would take them uh, every other night, really, um, wow. quite religiously, in the hippie way, not for uh, self-indulgence, but for psychic awareness, and for general communing with the Godhead. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so that, when, when you're communing with the Godhead, uh, trying to, you know, do romantic poetry for an hour just seems kind of irrelevant really (laughs) (laughs) in the scheme of the universe Uh, so um, so anyway this fed taking a lot of the mushrooms which we only did for literally 18 months but it had a really profound effect on us and we decided we had to get away from the city um, to be more to commune with nature man Mm. and we also wanted to just basically grow our own food and uh, live off the land uh, which is uh, sounds hopelessly naive, especially when you're 21. Yeah. But that's what we wanted to do. So we rented a cottage on the Black Isle, which is north of Inverness, uh, which had some land around it. Not a lot. I mean, just really a large garden front and back. Yeah. And uh, we had to grow all our own food. Now, we were on the dole at the time. This was 1982, late 82, going through to 86 when we were there. Yeah. And... Um, uh, it was a time of mass unemployment, which was brilliant for people like us, who we effectively used the, the door as an extended gap year. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, we had no money literally at all. Uh, so and, and nobody was bothered about uh, being on the door. I never asked you any questions. It came around once a year, literally around to that cottage in the middle of nowhere. And uh, as I say, he's trying to get work, and we'd say, no, no, we're not. We're, going to, we're making our own work. I said, oh, that's fine. Then they'll go away again for another year. <laughs> and uh, so we had all that time to develop who we were and what we wanted to do. And um, and that's how we started the knitwear business there. And uh, that uh, that was like three and a half years we were on the Black Island. We did, like, literally had got about 70% self-sufficient by yeah. then. And uh, it was ahead of its time, really. I mean, if I if you think now about say organic food that's very mainstream um if you think about veganism that's quite mainstream now mm. uh we were growing organic food without you know growing without chemicals it was back in the early 80s that was called doing it with muck and magic it was mm. considered 
arcane and ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, and like now, of course, it's come full circle. Yeah. And now it's the, you know, now everyone knows why it's a good thing and a reason to do it. Same goes for animal rights things and free range stuff and, um, and not being dependent on oil, uh, pollution from cars, recycled everywhere. Um, you know, all of these things which were way out hippie left field things back then have all moved into the mainstream really so that's been a very slightly galling in some ways to see <laughs> i like it being you're a bit like jonathan woodgate you're ahead of your time <laughs> yes i am the jonathan woodgate of organic gardening yeah it's often been said <laughs> so we did that for quite a lot of years then we put you know we were young and so by the time we were in our mid-20s we got a bit bored of being out in the middle of nowhere we moved back to the northeast mm. into County Durham, and we continued the knitwear business there for many, well, quite four or five years. And I've kept, we've moved around a lot uh, since then, but um, yeah, we just sort of we did the knitwear for a while, and then we moved from the knitwear into doing men's tailoring and making waistcoats, which we would Dawn would design the fabrics for, which we would produce on knitting machines, and we would cut these. So we saw those all over the country. I mean, so even you manufactured them yourselves. Yeah, we did. We would make up to 20, 25 a day. Right. Wow. Um, that we sounds did really like... well on that. Is that was that Sorry? a long working day? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, literally, we'd work from 10 till 11, you know. So it yeah. was just, yeah, it was insane. Um, but you see, the trouble is, we're not business people at all. And uh, we're just people who are creative and will work really hard. And because you've got to, because you've got to make some money to pay the rent. Hmm. And uh, so. You know, we could never, we could never really. Um, we did what we had t- one really good year in 1991. I think is it two? I can't remember now. Oh no, it was 1992, three. And uh, we we got some money together, and uh, we just we put everything in storage and moved to California. <laughs> and uh, we lived in a hotel in California for a year uh, because we just thought, well, <laughs> it was a good exchange rate at the time. I seem to remember we, we had, I think we had four thousand quid and. We managed to live in a hotel for nearly 10 months. That's amazing. Yeah, I don't know how we did that. But we ended up, the money ran out, and we actually sold our jeans uh, to a a junk store, which I I said at the time, we're only doing this so that we can put this as an anecdote in an autobiography. (laughs) So selling your trousers is quite a move. I I assume you had some shorts or something else to wear. I presume so. I didn't walk around naked. No, no. Well, I probably would have ended up doing that if it stayed there much longer. So, but so no, that must have been a big thing, though, to go there for a year to California. It I mean, yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, what was it like? Yeah. yeah. Well, we lived in Laguna Beach, uh, which was right on the ocean, and um, it was a little. It was one of these hotels where you get a little kitchen in a room when it has a, like a bedroom and a bathroom off that, and so we were like literally right on the beach. Um, Ah, oh, well, it was to, to us. I mean, uh, uh, we'd been to California uh, on holiday uh, twice in the previous couple of years. Hmm. But to be there and to live there it was just, uh, well, it was just really suited us because we were vegans at the time. And it, and it kind of, people didn't think it was weird there, yeah. uh, which was great. And uh, uh, it, the radio station was all full of classic rock. So that was great. Um, it was sunshine <laughs> you know, for 300 days a year. There was just nothing that was The only trouble was we actually felt quite bitter that we hadn't done it earlier. We'd wait till we were in our early 30s to do it. I said, like, I wish that we'd come and done this, like, in the early 80s. But, um, but no, but eventually the money ran out after many adventures. Uh, 
we actually came back, took loads of orders for more waistcoats. We went back, flew back out, bought a load of fabric from a big hippie fabric store in Laguna Beach, made up all of the orders, sent them all back home. <laughs> and uh, Basically, if we'd had the internet in the early uh, 90s, then we would have been fine. But we had to keep flying from... Uh, from England uh, yeah. to California to deliver orders. And it was just eating up money, and it wasn't it wasn't practical, really, to be honest. So yeah, so we had to come back eventually. Yeah, so I guess and, these um, days you could run it you, that business from anywhere, couldn't you? Well, when in the in the what I call the glory days of DJCs, well, I, <laughs> I ran it from a bath in uh, Las Vegas more than <laughs> once. Was just with the laptop sitting on the edge of the bath. Um, and I said, I'm only doing that. I, I would be in touch with the production unit back home. Yeah. And I would say, I'm in the bath, but I'm only doing this just so I can say I have run the, I've run the company from a bath. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and we, you know, we did that. We, we GHS was brilliant for us because it just allowed us, we could be anywhere and live anywhere and do, because we, 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 we rented a house in, on the Las Vegas country estate in 2009. Trade was going through the roof at the time, um, largely because we were, uh, advertising so heavily in the then new Facebook mm-hmm. um, pages, <coughs> and um, we did great. And uh, so we rented a house there for five weeks, <laughs> and we were sitting drunk at eleven a.m. pushing twenty dollar bills into into poker machines. And uh, but unfortunately, uh, trade dropped off a bit while we were away and took our eyes off the wheel. And uh, and so from being in a position, so we were selling about three hundred shirts a day at the time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, because we were spending so much ab- on advertising, if it went below two fifty, we didn't make any money. Right. Uh, and it did go below two fifty. And uh, long story short, we ended up thirty five thousand pounds in debt, oh. uh, largely due to being drunk in front of poker machines. <laughs> uh, but you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not have any responsibilities or anything. I mean, it's not like anybody was depending on, on us other than us. So, no. You know. But uh, that's amazing. Just, that's just, all over really <laughs> so when did the writing uh sort of come on come into view because well, was that that wasn't really in the picture early on no well interestingly um in the 90s i had written three books three novels but they were terrible and i did and i'd sent them away to publishers and obviously i didn't get any of them accepted uh, because they were terrible why were they um, terrible I, oh they were just um corny um verbose <laughs> Just badly characterised, no plots worthy of the note. It was a bit. They're all a bit. I would call teenagey, even right. though I was in the early thirties when I was writing them. Right. Um, uh, but I, I owe my writing career to uh, two tremendous men. Uh, one called Steve Anglesey, and another called Howard Johnson. I still do stuff for Howard now, and um, they were editors at Football Three Six Five. Yeah. I think Steve was the editor, and Howard was the managing editor one step up sort of thing and i used to write in letters to the website about football in a very florid and odd way and it really chimed with steve who's a really is a is a genius right an unacknowledged genius um who um, was one of the guys that set up the new european yeah. newspaper yeah and uh, uh he just loved what i did and so they they, they offered me a column and uh, i started doing it in two, october november 2000 and uh, they offered me two or three pieces a week and that's so i started doing that and i've never looked back since and that's what everything flew uh 
uh, flowed through from that, really. Everything that I did subsequently, writing for newspapers, doing reviews for the Edinburgh Fringe, being on the Edinburgh Fringe comedy panel, making the William Hill Sports Book of the Year long list, all came from the opportunity they gave me because they understood I was a bit odd <laughs> and I uh, would write things that nobody else would write about football, which is I've never really written much about football. Mm. It's always about the culture around it or yeah. craziness around it, really, you know? So, yeah, so I owe it all to them. And what so made you saying, What made you write yeah. into Football 365 in the first place? Well, I'll tell you what it was. was um, when it was being set up, Danny Kelly had sent... I'd, I'd somehow had signed up for an email in 1997 when he was... Um, and he was setting it up, and he was stated what he wanted it to be a football um, website. And uh, I mean, it's early days of the internet, uh, uh, 1997. And so we didn't really have anything to judge it against. Hmm. And I, but I knew Danny from his work on The Enemy and from um, Q Magazine, I think, wasn't it? And he did hmm. 442 as well. Yeah. And uh, I, I always knew he was a, an interesting person. And um, he, he said in this email, he was asking for ideas about how we would like. It to, to develop. So I've always obviously been to football this time. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, I would like a website that managed to combine football uh, with the music of Amundul 2. <laughs> Amundul, well, there's two Amunduls. There's Amundul 1, who are an anarchist collective uh, that released two albums, which is essentially just long jams of music. There's Amundul 2, who are the more commercial variety, but <laughs> uh, radically uncommercial. And, uh, and I said, I'd like to combine football with the music of Amundul 2. And uh, he wrote back to me and he said, one day uh, we will make this happen. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and I, even, I, t I even occasionally still speak to Danny now for one reason or another. Yeah. I always remind him of that. And uh, that was what I thought. I knew that I was, I knew these people running this were not normal people. They were interesting. They were my kind of people. Has and it so, happened now, would you say? Has, that, has, yeah. has your dream been realised? Oh, Yes, absolutely. More. I mean, the one must probably about the third thing I ever wrote was in relation <laughs> to Middlesbrough FC, and uh, <laughs> somehow contrived a link to Amundul, uh, just to make the whole thing come true. Yeah, brilliant. But I mean, yeah, I mean, um, and the brilliant thing is that since since the start of it all, really, in fact, absolutely since the start of it, I've never been told what to write. Uh, no one's ever said you can't write that. Um, no one's ever said you've got to write this. I've always had a free reign to do it. And it's been a beautiful thing because it's really allowed me to develop a, a way of writing and a style. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and it, it, it's, it's, it's been so perfect. And since 2004, when Sarah took over as editor and Steve went on to work on The Mirror and Howard, there was all sorts of financial issues. Um, uh, and it, 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 she's just been so brilliant for me. You know, mm. she's just, she's, she, she's just been allowed me to develop and uh, give me a platform for what I do. Yeah, and uh, I couldn't. It couldn't have been a better experience, really. It's been wonderful, and I've never not filed a copy every week. I've always got something I've never missed ever, <laughs> not one week. I always say that I was um, in. I think it was 2006. Me and Dawn were travelling through America on an Amtrak, and uh, we broke down just outside of Reno, uh, which does sound like a, a Johnny Cash song. <laughs> yeah, it does. And, uh, uh, and we brought down for thirteen hours, so just out in the in the in the desert, in the Nevada desert, uh, and uh, I, I had to file my copy because it was the Euros. It was Euro two thousand six at the time, mm. and so I'd written it, and I, and I went out and I stood in, literally in the Nevada desert, right, with a mobile phone, which was a very uh, it was an advanced thing at the time. So it was also a modem. I hooked it up to the 
to my laptop and I managed to send it over about four minutes it took to send it. <laughs> um, the piece back to Sarah in London and uh, like uh, that was dedication. You know, I wouldn't, I would, I'm not going to miss, I'm not going to miss my deadline. I'm going to get this in. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I'm just standing in the desert, the hot, hot breath of the uh, Nevada desert wind blowing on me as I'm desperately just trying to upload this thing before the battery runs out. <laughs> so I've always been dedicated to it because it's always been such a brilliant um, friend of mine. You know, it's done me, it's, yeah. it's just been brilliant. It's transformed my life, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I've got to say, I know your work from, I know about you from Football 365 because I love Football 365 and have done Good for life. years and years and still now, well, I, I think pretty much from when it started, I started reading it because it feels to me like it's part of that same tradition as like WSC when Saturday comes, you know, that, yeah. that look at football, not just at match reports or not just at, tran- not, no transfer nonsense. It's all how football impacts uh, culture and the, the, the far reaching sort of tentacles that football has into other elements of culture and, and vice versa. And I think, yeah, my my routine still today. Whenever I have my lunch, I just first thing I do is I read Media Watch on Football Three Six Five, and then see oh. what else is on the website. And obviously, oh, if your stuff's there, I'll have a look at that too. But it's um, yeah, it's an amazing it's football. football. It's the tone of it. I love. I love it. It's interesting how it's changed over the years as well. Um, and unless you've been with it from the start and kept note on it, you won't realise how much it has changed. But somehow even though it's changed a lot in terms of what we write about, what we can and can't say, and all these different things, we it, there is somehow a continuous thread right back to 1997 mm. when it started. I think that's really Sarah. Sarah came in almost at the beginning of it. And so, you know, she's the guiding hand behind it all. Mm. And we've won the um, Football's, uh, Football Supporters Federation, I can never say it, um, <laughs> Digital Media of the Year for two years running. And I've said to her, when we were on it in December, I said, this is for you, really, you know, because you know, you're the one who guides it all. People come and go. I'm okay, I'm still there after 18 years. But we've had lots of people who used to write for us and have gone on to do other great things. And uh, and then she recruits somebody else. And, and she always gets the tone right, mm. you know. And that's a real art form to do that, you know. It really is an expression of her, yeah. the whole stuff, and what, you know, the who she chooses to write for it is it's been remarkable really and yeah. um you know for 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 any website to exist for 22 years is incredible you know it is yeah and and as you say to maintain that consistency um is amazing really that you know it it still has that i mean how would you describe the tone of it because i i know how i think of it but i don't know how, it's hard to describe well when we first started uh, and when I first started on it, it was definitely more um, off the wall. Yeah. Um, and sort of, see, back then, in some ways, there was less football analysis, I think, in, in the early days. Yeah. Um, things like those lookalikes that used to be, that everywhere, I think the Telegraph still do lookalikes, but, you know, where you had one player that looked like another, and yeah. there was lots of stuff like that. Yeah, we yeah, I've forgotten about that. Yeah, that's right. Well, we, ne- we would never do that now because that's like a kind of, I suppose it might come back in a retro fashion, but it yeah. feels like it's, though it's you know a dead horse, really that one. <laughs> but these days we do much more intensive analysis from Daniel Story, who's a great writer, <laughs> going to be a freelance yeah. too. Um, uh, so we will look at things statistically as well, um, but we will also have sort of um, what's the word um, uh, a sort of anti anti establishment type of positions on things we will talk about feminism a lot um and we'll talk about politics in mm. one way or another 
but not in a not in a kind of preachy way, but just no. bring it into it. I mean, I've been writing about women's football uh, in a positive way since about 2005. Yeah, uh, getting abuse every year for doing so. Um, you know, we've so we've been into all of that every for a long time. So, but my job really, as I see it, and I've, I've defined it as this, no one's told me this, but I, in fact, actually, no, it's not true. Sarah once said to me, when on because the column comes on a Monday, she said, like, whatever's in your head on Monday morning or on Sunday night, <laughs> whatever the first thing that's that's really big in your brain, you write about that, mm. write about that that thing that you feel strongest about <laughs> so that's what i always do and i always i always apply a kind of filter to it which is will anybody else be writing this tomorrow <laughs> yeah football pieces you can read and if i think no nobody will be writing about this in this way then i'll write it you know yeah so it's provided a kind of alternative voice i've got more political over the years um as i've got older and more indignant at the way things are and um so, yeah, it has changed a lot. I mean, I used to do a lot of storytelling in the early columns yeah. from days of living in California, and which were actually, again, uh, though I, I didn't realise it really necessarily at the time, where that was me getting ready to become a storyteller, yeah. uh, to become a novelist. Um, and when we sold EJTs in 2012, we had the money to live off without having to do anything else. It yeah. allowed, us to, allowed me to develop my writing career, write all the novels, and uh, and then to don't develop her art career, and um, uh, but I've been preparing for that for years by all these football-related or vaguely football-related stories I would spin. I would tell things that had happened to me, or things that had happened to other people that I knew, <laughs> yeah. or uh, there would be a there would be a mixture of fact and fiction in exactly the same way that the Nick Gaiman novels are. In that things that, like for example, in the first novel there. And it goes back to his dad's house after his dad's died to clear it all up and everything. Now, that's exactly what happened to me. Right. So I used loads of things that have happened to me in the Gamma books um, in just the same way as I used to in the football. So it all comes together in the end. So when did you... I mean, you said you'd written those three books in the 90s that didn't work out, but then what made you go back to that, uh, you know, and, and decide, right, I, I want to try and write a novel now or write a series of novels as you've ended up doing? Well, how it worked was... Again, uh, going back to 2009, when we were in uh, that house in Las Vegas, drunk, pushing 20s into <laughs> poker machines, I got an email from a chap called Humphrey Hunter, who was an agent, and he'd liked my football writer, and he said, do you want to do a book? And I said, all right, then. So I ended up um, writing um, We Ate All the Pies, yeah. which was uh, subtitled How Football uh, Swallowed Britain Whole. And it was just about the culture of football and why it's so popular in Britain, You know why it pretty much since the start it's been incredibly popular um and that got uh, long listed for the william hill sports book of the year in 2010 mm. and um uh, so that was a profound moment in life i think everybody needs the things i'm interested to see what you think about this but mm. i think you, there's a point at which everyone who's creative needs some outside acknowledgement that they're <laughs> any good at this yeah uh, whether that's by selling a piece of uh, art or but with me that book, and again, Danny Kelly was on the, the, the panel for that. Um, so again, that was, I didn't know that at the time, but that was another fortunate thing. So he was, <laughs> yeah. he already liked my work. Yeah. And um, uh, it was just somebody going, yeah, you can do this. You're a writer. Because I didn't really think I was a writer. I, and I've struggled with um, imposter syndrome for years. Yeah. And, and that was the first thing which broke the wall, which just said, yeah, you can write. This is one of the best sports books of this year. I thought, bloody hell, you know. And I was, uh, honestly, man, that, that was so, <laughs> that broke down so many barriers psychologically for me, yeah. you know. 
we all need that. We all need someone to say, this is great, man. You can do this. Yeah, yeah I think you're right, because often being doing things that are creative or trying to do things you know, completely off your own back, you can often feel like you're sort of shouting into the void. Um, oh, God. Yeah. And it, it kind of, you're right, you need, after a while, you do need that sort of reassurance that, or that recognition that you are doing something that has value, not just to yourself, but potentially to others as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't think it's because of our upbringing, I tend to agree. And you brought up working class, you don't know, in the 60s, you don't know anybody who's a writer. Mm. Um, it's not sort of thing that people like us do. <laughs> so, you know, you automatically don't feel, you, you feel don't have the confidence you would have if you'd grown up in a family of writers, you know, just yeah. like that. It's like, you know, if you never knew anybody who ever had done anything like that, then you've got, you know, it just feels like it's beyond your ken, really. Yeah. I must say that I did see Roger McGuff, uh, the poet, a sixth form, uh, in about 78, and he was the first person I'd seen live who was like spoke like a normal person and uh, did art, did mm. poetry. You know, and I, that lit a flame in me. Then I thought there's a possibility here. You know, because to me, and, and also the film of Kez did that as well. Yeah. So those were sort of things that lit the flame early on. But even so, I mean, I'd got to 2009. You know, I was like, what was I then? I was in my late forties. Yeah. And you still, these things don't leave you easily, or they didn't for me anyway. This, this, the feeling that. Well, I'm just scamming this. I'm just scamming this. You know, everybody must know I'm just scamming it. <laughs> and uh, but then you know that that hasn't that's left me now. Actually, I, uh, but for I mean, only in the last five or six years, really, has it actually totally gone. Yeah. And I feel completely vindicated in it. You know. Huh. So anyway, that that book had come out, and then I wrote another book called The Meat Fix. Yeah. For, um, that came out through Fire uh, Bikeback Publishing, who Humphrey placed it with, who were lovely people. Yeah. And then. Um, I did the meat fix, which was about in fact we we'd given up being vegans and the reasons behind all of that and the consequences of it and and because uh, Humphrey just said it's a, such a remarkable story that you've got to write about it, so I did that. Yeah. Of course, all the titles all had uh, were all uh, songs from my record collection. <laughs> uh, so often obscure ones by the mothers of invention. <laughs> uh, you know, so all these things carry through. Yeah. Um, but then I'd done that and that did quite well. Um, but I'd hardly made any money because you don't make any money as a writer uh, doing it that way uh, because you make 50p royalty a book. Right. So, you know, if you sell 5,000 books, you, you know, which would be a decent amount to sell, you end up with two and a half grand, yeah. which is not good. So uh, because we're ornery and, uh, and Teesidey and Arcee, I said, well, I think we should set up our own publishing company and publish them ourselves. Yeah. And instead of making 50p a book, make five quid a book. So that's what we did. So we set up head publishing. Yeah. Again, because Dawn being the the kind of um, uh, so good at so many different things, she's because she designs all the t-shirts as well, of course. Yeah. Uh, and does all the graphic design for that. So she's really good at graphic design. So she said, "Look, I can lay out the books and I can do all the covers. We'll we'll just uh, then we'll we'll find a printer. Um, we send, we'll create the PDFs, send them to printers. They send us a box of books, and then we'll put them on a website and sell them. So she wrote the websites for it all, uh, and uh, that's how we got started doing it, and put them onto Amazon and all the rest of it. Um, so yeah, so that's how we ended up actually having a publishing company and how I ended up <laughs> publishing novels. And uh, uh, that was sort of twenty fourteen. The first one came out. It took me. So I, I did a commercial decision to write three and release them all together because yeah. I thought if people like one 
there's another two to buy. Well, that'll test how popular they are, yeah. and we'll make money that way. And uh, within a month, it was clear there was a really decent market for them. Right. And uh, I'd started, I mean, that was the, the mind blow is that I put them on there, I advertised them, and they just started selling immediately. <laughs> I, I advertised them only to people on Seaside initially. How did you and advertise it? Like, you what, sorry? How did you advertise it? Uh, through Facebook. Yeah, right. I just targeted people who lived in Middlesbrough who liked reading books right, <laughs> reading with an ad. And it just it just took off immediately. And uh, that was that was a mind blow. I just thought, bloody hell, what have I done here? And then the people who read them all, there was people who read them in all three in a week and said, when's the next one's coming out? <laughs> so it was incredible. So that launched us off down another route entirely, which has taken me into lots of other different places. So. Yeah. And how many are in the series now, the uh, the Nick Geimer series? There are 14. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, there's 14th one's just been finished now. So there's 13 out and 14 just coming. But I've been writing another football book at the moment. I'm oh, yeah. writing a, a called uh, Can We Have Our Football Back, Please? And that is uh, about uh, the what the Premier League financial model has done to football and how it's uh, why we feel, a lot of us feel really uh, angry at the way that football is now and feel disgusted by it in terms of the money and the attitudes and everything around it so it's a sort of, the subtitle of it is going to be something along the lines of uh, how to break the Premier League and what we should replace it with right. uh, it's, it's quite a political book yeah. um, I've been speaking lots because the great thing about it is I've been able to make lots of contacts with people through my 365 writing in, in the media like Mark Chapman and people like that Yeah, and uh, I've had a chat with loads of people about where they think football's going and uh, what's right and what's wrong about it so that's coming out in August Fantastic and that's head publishing presumably Yeah that's coming out yeah that will, will be that's, the thing is we need quite big flats to live in because at least a quarter of the flat is a, is a book depository <laughs> <laughs> that's, the only, that's the only downside of it uh, and we've got uh, yeah but anyway so we have to accommodate all of that but no yeah it'll be it'll be interesting and I think that people I've already introduced bits of it through through features and through columns in recent weeks mm. um, and it seems to, it definitely has an audience for it because a lot I mean I started off from the premise that I had this kind of nameless sort of void in my soul about uh, Premier League football. I just thought, ah, just something's not right about it. it. doesn't feel right anymore. It doesn't yeah. feel like the game that I fell in love with now. And then, that's, then it, it all coalesced when this, uh, Alexis Sanchez went to Manchester United and I discovered he was being paid over £400,000 yeah. a week and he wasn't even playing. And then I discovered he was getting £75,000 for every game he actually played. So he was actually getting the four hundred grand. For just being alive, and then another seventy-five for playing. I thought, man, that—that's crystallised it for me. I just thought, yeah. this is sick culture. It's a sick culture that has produced an economy within its industry that allows this to happen. So, yeah. yeah so I started to, I thought I'd tear the beast out of me and inspect it and see what what was wrong, really. You know. So that's what it's all about. Yeah, I mean, I look, for, I look forward to reading that. I mean, it is—it is crazy how. I mean, it is kind of disgusting, isn't it, the way the Premier League has gone and the the, the behaviour of the the clubs and the the agents and the the sums of money that we're talking about and the the sort of cold corporate nature of it all. Now it's something very, yeah. yeah it's not the same game anymore, is it? Well, I often say it's that when you write about it, and you put it down on paper and figures. Um, it all looks like so much numbers, and you don't really take it seriously, as no. though. It's not 
in this world, as though it's not money that could be used to do things with. Do you <laughs> know what I mean? It just looks like numbers. Yeah. But I think when you get together with anybody, and I was talking to a lovely chap, Simon Mundy, for the uh, for the podcast he does, and I was sitting here, you know, we just sit here, and you just thought, you know, we just know it's wrong. It's morally wrong that mm. people are earning four hundred thousand pounds a week for being just for being at a football club. It's just, it's you know, we don't need to justify it more than that. I don't think. I think we can say mm. it's just morally wrong. It shouldn't happen. And it, you know, and it, I think the the humanity of it when you confront sort of person to person on it, we all just we all agree with that. Nobody's going to stand there and go, "Oh, I think it's great. He definitely deserves four hundred thousand pounds a week, <laughs> not for playing football." You know, it's just like no one would say that, or no. nobody would say anyway. So, you know, I wanted to explore that more profoundly and find out why, you know, because I, I think a lot of people feel this kind of nameless discontent about modern football, but can't quite work out why. It just feels like, oh, I don't know, it just feels not of the people anymore. Yeah. And I'm very much by people for the people kind of guy. So, yeah. Yeah. And I managed to also uh, wangling a lot of it. Um, uh, green politics into it as well, which is something that really interests me. Yeah. You know, going back all those years. So, yeah, uh, I think we're coming to an age of the end of of of, of a certain type of uh, consumer capitalism. Uh, yeah. Because we can't go on like this. The first line of the book is, "We can't go on like this." You know, it, I know, it, we all know it. We can't <laughs> go on like this. You know, yeah. and that applies to football, but applies to how we live our lives too. I think. Yeah, it's massively as you mentioned before with the sustainability packaging, all that kind of stuff. It's all part of the yeah. same story, isn't it? Um, Absolutely, man. I'm, yeah. I'm a great believer. That going back to those hippie days and all of the mus- all of uh, taking the mushrooms. The one thing it taught you, uh, my big takeaway point, is that everything is related to everything else. You mm. can't separate one bit of the world, one bit of life from another bit of life. It all it's all interrelated. Nothing is separate. It all connects <laughs> together, and. Um, once you start to sort of realise that, and you think, well, you know, what's football doing? What you know is in relation to how the world is, and one of the ways, one of the things it's doing, the Premier League's doing, is establishing the idea that fabulous wealth is okay, that uh, that rampant consumerism is fine, that buying a hundred and ninety thousand pound car, that's fine, you can do that. That's actually not just fine. That's something you should be aiming to do. Mm. That it should. That, that's a sort of almost holy thing in a in a kind of consumerist capitalist society, and yet we know. That that is ending the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Not such a good idea after all, you know? And um, so I've done a whole chapter on that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I guess Um, it's also just that it's what we regard as success, isn't it? You know, so for many people, that is the pinnacle, you know, being fabulously wealthy, living in a massive house having a flashy car that is like the the most successful you can be as a human being (laughs) right now but it doesn't for many people or it doesn't have to be like that does it well also i'm sure you've talked to people um uh, about this is that it doesn't make anyone happy no that's the big lie of it all you talk to anybody who's got loads of dough if they're a miserable person the the dough isn't making them any happier no and it's been scientifically proven that i think uh after you earn 55 grand a year, that is the point at which I think it's called emotional well-being is established. Yeah. Uh, and there is no greater happiness delivered by greater amounts of money after that point. No. And uh, it, it's that other things come into play after that point. It comes into play with your health, and um, friends and family and environment, and all these things. Yeah. But the ability to buy a massive car, no. It doesn't make anyone any happier. No. Just fleeting. It's a fleeting thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've taken... Uh, uh, a lot of uh, my thinking on this from going through a massive depression 
um, when I first started writing the first three Nick Geimer books, and uh, Dawn was suffering terribly from depression, and that really triggered off, peaked some of my long-held issues, really. And um, you realise that happiness is a fleeting thing, generally. Contentment is really what we're aiming for, mm. I think. Yeah. Um, uh, contentment is more achievable. I think happiness is the is is it's like joy. It's kind of like a it's kind of like chili powder on the meal. It isn't the meal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the meal is contentment, and uh, contentment is a mental state. It's a kind of chemical balance in your head. Uh, I don't think it's to do with materialism beyond a certain point. Once you're comfy and have somewhere clean and dry to live, and uh, contentment's what we should aim for. Now we've got a country that is eating 71.5 million prescriptions of, of antidepressants a year. Mm. Uh, we are spending £14 billion pounds on type 2 diabetes and rising all the time. This isn't a country which is content. And the pursuit of money, the pursuit of this kind of dream world of consumerism that is sold to us on TV and, and, and which football endorses so profoundly, uh, and football is the most popular sport in the country, so you know its its effect is huge. It's it's an illusion. We're chasing something which will not provide the thing that was missing in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that we you know, we have to really we have to really reassess how we. How I, I mean, and I go into this quite a bit in the book about how I feel as if the Premier League and the um, the idea of peer wall TV has really fragmented us as, as a society. That which was in the common embrace has been hived off to those who can afford it mm-hmm. or want to pay for it. And to me, that is a destructive thing. That's shattered the society that once would come together. Now we can't. There are no water cooler movements about the Premier League because hardly anybody watches it. Mm. Because hardly anybody will pay for paywall TV as a percentage of the interested audience. That Yet when we have it on terrestrial telly, it's available to everybody, <clears throat> like during the World Cup, and you can see England play Croatia, 30 million people watched that. Yeah. We all together. It was a it was a common experience. Had it been on Sky, probably three or four million at the very, very most. Yeah. I mean, it's so, the same with cricket, isn't it? You know, with the 2005 Ashes is like, was such absolutely. a big thing because it was on Channel 4 and then, you know, nobody's watching this World Cup, apart from the fact that it's raining all the time, but nobody can well, see exactly. the current World Cup. But if it was on the BBC, a bit like the mm. Women's World Cup, there'd be a lot more, yeah, People talking about it, people sharing in the whole experience. And I think the thing that we don't, and, and again, it took me researching into this and thinking about it in, de- in a lot of depth, we just think, okay, that's just a consumer choice. You buy it or you don't buy it. But it's not just that. I think there's a greater profundity to it than that because it is in these experiences, it is our collective experiences that make up the society mm. that we live in. Mm. And once you deny people access to things, either financially or um, uh, or, uh, or you know, in a, in administratively, in that appear wall, people, lots of people can afford it, but they just can't be asked to set it all up and do it. I mean, yeah. literally, just the actual doing of it puts people off. <laughs> so once you fragment things and divide everything up and set us all up as little consumers in our own little consumerist world. Once we lose the sense of collective, I think we lose a lot of contentment. Mm. And that's why we're eating seven and a half million, seven to one and a half million prescriptions for antidepressants a year. You know, Mm. it's uh, my my background. I mean, it's great that I've been able to talk to you about all of this because it actually does illustrate, I hope, where a lot of the thinking comes from. Mm. But like, because I came from a, a family which had mental illness in it, and because I now can see the, how that affected me, I, I and and that now that we are more aware, 
uh, of, uh, of mental health and that we, you know, with a lot, there are a lot of people who suffer from depression. I can see how a lot of these things all interrelate just through my own life, you mm-hmm. know, and that you don't get one thing without getting another thing. So you don't get isolated, people who are isolated by um, their economic circumstances. You don't get that uh, for, for free. So like if someone feels like really isolated and really uh, pushed to the margins, then you can say, you get, because of that, you'll get something like Brexit, where people just, I mean, that's a story I tell uh, quite a bit, but I was doing a book talk just before uh, the um, Brexit vote in, <coughs> excuse me, in Stockton, mm. and uh, which voted massively to leave. And um, uh, I heard two guys talking about it beforehand, and one lad said, he says, I, I'm, I'm voting to leave. He said, I don't care if it knackers everything. At least then, everywhere will be just like Hartlepool. Now that's that's very teasidey, by the way. That's making a joke, <laughs> but also being rather snarky and, and biting yeah. in culture. In other words, it's fucked here. So, like, I don't care if it's fucked everywhere else. Why would I care? I've got nothing to lose. You, you've taken it all from me. I've mm. got nothing. Now what you got to do. And that's a consequence of all of that. You see, yeah. and I think that all these things go together, and that you know, Sky and pay per view football. That's all part of that too. You know, it's all like, oh, that's for you over there. That's for you over there. But it's no longer we. It's, it's all of it now is about us, and it's not about we. And it's all about me, and not about we. That would yeah. be better. Put it. I think that's a really fun, and I think that younger generation of kids who I speak to now, who are eighteen, twenty, twenty-five, they're seeing this. They're seeing that the, the deal that was on offer is a busted flush, you know. Mm. Just thinking about the depression again for a minute. You know, you mentioned you had a a, a period of it while you were writing those yeah. first three books, and we, as we were talking about a bit earlier, you know, as you you get older, you start to understand yourself more, and 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 obviously we talked about um, people talking more about things as you as time has gone on from the seventies to now. I mean, do you feel more able to deal with that? those bouts of depression now than you were in the past is it is it more of a you can observe it a bit more rather than it being all consuming or how how does it is it is it easier to deal with these days i guess well uh no it isn't really easy to deal with to be honest i don't think it is but what i do know i know what's happening now Hmm. and that helps in itself so i know what's happening um i still drink heavily um uh, I've gone through periods of, I went through five years without drinking at all, but that's just the same symptom as the drinking. It's just like I'm either on or off. I can't mm. be anywhere in between. That's just the same same thing, really. It's still unhealthy, except it's unhealthy in a different sort of way. Um, no, I mean, I've, I think I think that it just comes and goes like it always did. And uh, I, I suppose I use it more now. I, I, I find the writing has really helped. I don't get it as bad as I used to, and I, as I said, now when it happens, I know what it's all about. I know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and Dawn, as well as you know, we're together we've educated ourselves about it so that we, and I wrote about this through the plots in the books, but we didn't used to understand why we were as we were. Because obviously, when you're depressed, you can be quite cold and alienating mm. and push people away and basically be no fun to be with. And it looks like from the outside, when you don't understand that, it looks like. Uh, you're just being a bastard, really, you mm. know. And it isn't that. That's not what's happening at all. Uh, but, you know, it looks like that. And now we understand what's going on. So now we can help each other through it in a way that we, even if it's just by keeping our distance, because yeah. sometimes that's all it needs. It's just not, you know, we, we don't get at each other for being miserable, put it mm. that way. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not, that's not like life is no fun at all, which it absolutely is. I know, I know but, exactly what you mean. 
Oh, that's good. Um, yeah. So it's, you see, I don't think, I think we've been sold an idea. I, certainly this is how I view it anyway. Hmm. We've been sold an idea that life should be skipping through a meadow <laughs> of joy and happiness and fun and laughter all the time. And that isn't what really life is. Life is, you know, that's just a li- little bit of things. I think a lot of the time we are just conditioned to expect something to happen which isn't really ever going to happen. Mm. You know, we're not going to sit around being the most cheerful soul all the time. Things are going to get us down. Some days we'll feel good, some days we won't. I think that is that is the nature of our existence. Mm. And I think perhaps we feel pressure because we are being brilliant and happy all the time i think what's wrong with me everybody else is happy why am i not and of course everybody's feeling exactly the same yeah and just you know we should just again but you see this is because we are all so um fragmented as a society we're all pushed into our little boxes and we all you know we don't come together enough really Mm. and um uh, but i think it is changing i do genuinely do i mean it's changed so much i could never have found the words to say this 30 years ago, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, I probably couldn't. So there is good things happening. I wouldn't wish anybody to take away from it the fact that I think all all is lost. I I think we are on the cusp of change, but change is good, really, I think, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of change, what what took you back to Scotland and then now to where you live now? Because you live in pretty rural part of Scotland now, don't you? Yeah, well, yes, by the sea, we live on the harbour. I'm literally looking out over across the Firth of Forth. Um, okay. It's really right on the harbour of uh, a little fishing village called Pit and Weed. That's right. So fishing boats coming in and out all the time. Um, well, we uh, let's think. We moved to Edinburgh in two thousand and five uh, on the day that Liverpool won the uh, the uh, Champions League final, <laughs> right. and uh, uh, we did that because we've been living in North Yorkshire, which is where we set up DJTs. We've been living there for six years. And we got bored, and we decided going to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um, and we really loved it. We loved the vibe in the city, and we just thought it was a great city. Edinburgh went nowhere else, really. And uh, so we thought, right, cause we've got, again, because by then, obviously, the business could be run from anywhere. Mm. So uh, we just we just up sticks and moved to the new town in Edinburgh, um, in a big Georgian flat, and we stayed there for six and a half years. At the end of the six and a half years uh, was when we were both, Don particularly at that point, was incredibly depressed and found the noise of the city to be really um, disturbing. And so we moved to rural Norfolk, believe it or not, mm. uh, for three and a half years. And we lived around the Norfolk Broads in a place right. called Ranworth, which was absolutely beautiful. It was really, really beautiful. And uh, but after that, we, we felt as though we had, we both got better there. Um, and then we felt as if we wanted to go back to a bit... Norfolk's beautiful, but it is 1957 there. So... <laughs> um, uh, so we decided to move back to Edinburgh. We moved to a street down from where we used to live. And we'd lived there since uh, 2014. Uh, it was getting so expensive living there. Uh, and our rent was about to go up to 1,600 quid a month. Yeah. And we thought, this is just stupid. And we'd also thought we've got to buy somewhere for our retirement. For our, well, not, we won't retire, but you know, for our older age. Yeah. Uh, so we thought what we'd do was move somewhere cheaper, um, save up some money, and then buy an house to live in until we're dead. And uh, so that's what the plan is. <laughs> and we moved out here. This is literally a third of the, it's like 600 quid. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's what we did. And we just, we came here and we just loved it. We just loved it. I mean, I, I'm a great believer in just going with your heart, really. I yeah. know this can 
sometimes lead you into trouble um <laughs> and we don't well you know we don't always reason things out a lot so we just think this is beautiful let's come let's go live here yeah uh and so that's what we did and uh, it's still i can still literally see edinburgh i can see edinburgh the lights of it and uh, arthur's seat from where i'm sitting now i can see it in the distance across the water so we go to town you know every few weeks anyway um right. so it's the both worlds really i i just i think as i get i think We've lived most most of our life not in cities. We've lived in out of the way rural places. Hmm. So there's obviously something about it which is chimes with our personalities. I think. Really. Yeah, a bit, like we, bit like we were saying before with the music. You know, you can't really. It's involuntary. That's where you keep being drawn back that way. Yeah, I mean, you obviously live in Manchester. Which part of Manchester do you live in? I live in South Manchester, so sort of uh, Didsbury, Withington. All uh, right. So my brother used to live in Heaton Moor. Oh yeah. That, yeah, that's not and, far. Um, yeah, it was a sort of like leafy suburb, I think. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, like, do you have that feeling where you're at, uh, where you live, you just think, yeah, this I, this works for me right now? Or do you just th- do, do you crave to have a different sort of life? Well, funnily enough, I do. because I've, I'm very happy where we are because I actually grew up around here. And then, yeah. but then I moved to London for a few years and then I came back mm-hmm. to Manchester, to Didsbury, and then I lived abroad for a few years but then i just kept it's honestly it's the it's the one place that i just feel completely at home and yeah. i never thought when i was young in my early 20s that i would end up coming back here i thought i would you know either live in london or live somewhere else or you know live abroad or i didn't necessarily yeah. think i would come back here um but i just kept sort of being drawn back to it and i do feel so comfortable here in a way that i don't feel not that I feel uncomfortable in other places, but just feel totally at ease here, uh, which yeah. I find really nice. Yeah, I really like that. I just feel totally at ease. And, and it, when you were younger, yeah. did you think going back there would sort of represent failure? In some way? ways, yeah. Yeah, that it would yeah. be, yeah, going back to, yeah, that I wouldn't have gone on a sort of proper adventure, if you like. I wouldn't have yeah. pushed myself as far as hard as I could or as, as far as I could. But I think actually um, over time it's, yeah, I think it's a bit like what you were saying before. As you get to know yourself more, you, you sort of work out what makes you content or happy. And mm. being around here and just sort of living around here and being it being so familiar, and I obviously still know a lot of people from school and things like that, which is yeah, which is nice. Not that I, you know, and I do still see my still same friends from school, which I did even when I lived away. But just having them, those people around the corner as well, is just nice. You know, it's, there's something about that for me that works. I think it's like I, I once termed it as learning to listen to your heart. Yeah, and I think when you're younger, you listen to your head too much, and uh, um, uh, like you try to work out. As I was saying about writing, when I first thought about writing, I wanted to be like Jack Jack Kerouac. Yeah, uh, because and I, that's the sort of writer I wanted to be. But I'm not Jack Kerouac. I'm me, and yeah. I can only be what I am. And <laughs> uh, and that I. I would be discontented with that when I was younger. I was like intellectually, I was I wanted to force myself to be something I wasn't. But like once you start to learn to listen to your heart, then you can pursue that with a can pursue what you feel comfortable with and what is an expression of you more easily. I think, and I think that applies to just as much to you know where, where you choose to live. And I mean, like I think we all go through. Or certainly, I both of us went through mm. a phase in our late twenties when we thought we would have smart clothes and <laughs> you know have designer fashions and live somewhere that would impress people. <laughs> and 
that's just so far away from where we are now. You know, we just that just doesn't matter anymore. No. And uh, I suppose it could be the cold breath of mortality on your neck. But uh, I think it is just a find of, well, that did that make you happy? No, it no. didn't. <laughs> uh, so why not just do what makes you happy? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm in a very, I mean, perhaps same as you, I'm a very fortunate um, position where I can keep my own hours, sit at home, write for 12, 14 hours a day if I want, go for a walk for two hours along the coast. Whatever we want to do, we can pretty much do. Mm. We're not tied to the nine to five. And that is a beautiful place to be. But by God, we've worked hard to get here, I must say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's been some serious, serious detours to get here. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, but that's largely, I tell you, it's just something I was interested in in terms of what you do mm. and doing podcasts and obviously doing things for Five Live. I think if you don't have a role model of somebody who you've seen or know who's done it, it makes it a lot harder yeah. to do that. Like if you've met somebody and, and they've become a presenter on the radio, then it suddenly seems doable. Yeah. In the same way, if you meet a writer who's like you from your background and they've done it, then it makes it doable. But I've found in all of our working lives so far, we've never, I've never had a role model like that. I've never known how to run a business, which is why the, there's been so many ups and downs yeah. because like nobody ever told me and i've got nobody to ask so how would i know you know you have to do what you five by your seat of your pants all the time yeah and i think that's such an important thing in life you're having kids is to like give them the experience of of seeing people do from lots of different types of backgrounds doing loads of different things because otherwise i mean it's like um it's been brilliant yeah, that the, the women's football, which the women's super leagues highlights have been a match of the day, mm. uh, or have been have their own match of the day um, all season long, and obviously now the World Cup, and they've seen massive growth in participation by girls in playing football over the last sort of year or two, and that's been put down largely to it just being on the telly. So yeah. you can see it just big numbers, but kids see it and go. I could be like that. She's from where where I'm from, and I, I could just kick a ball and be like that. And it's as simple as that, really. You know, yeah. It's, it's so much of it is that, isn't it? Is seeing someone like you doing something, and you think, oh, exactly. right, that's yeah, that's achievable. It is, and it's such an important part of life, really. And uh, so, I mean, I actually one of the things I've done since I've had a little bit of success as a writer uh, is to um, try and encourage other people to write i've done sort of various adult education things and and obviously i do when i've got new books out i tend to do a few talks down on teesside about them and i always say that you know like um everyone's got talent it's just not brought out of us you know and it's uh, in my case failure of um upbringing and of education and of school uh, but of society more broadly you know but i always encourage people to just like to give things a go because you don't know if you get put off things without trying them then you know you you could be really brilliant at it i've known somebody we did a short story competition on uh which is run by uh, stockton borough council and they gave us loads there was loads of entries and we had to read them all through and those the guy that won it we all agreed had written the best thing it was a brilliant short story just two thousand words and he was a uh, i think he worked for the council hmm. or something and he was i said to him you've got to do this you've got to pursue this like you don't realize how talented you are mm. you know i mean really it was better than anything i would have written <laughs> and, and he didn't realize he just sat there and said oh i just thought i'd do it and it was just like what i said have you you know have you had any education in it or the right you know been any courses no i just i just wrote it mate i just wrote it <laughs> and it's like well that was brilliant it's amazing <laughs> isn't it amazing that so, it is there and you know for so many people but you're right it just 
for whatever reason, for it's not allowed to come out or the opportunity never comes up for it to come out. Yeah, that's right, totally. Hmm. Yeah, it's food for thought for all of us, really, isn't it? Now, I'm going to ask uh, three uh, questions. I ask everybody three questions at the end. So I'm going to all ask right. you the, the same ones. So we've touched on it a bit already. Sorry? I was just going to about obscure rock bands of the 1970s. <laughs> it's not a quiz. <laughs> I all should right, have okay. done that, shouldn't I? But um, what... Uh, we've touched on it a bit already, but do you have like a, a routine that you always follow, you know, to get yourself in the right frame of mind, I suppose, these days to write, if you're sitting down yeah. to write a novel or to write the the, the column, what is it that you yeah. do to get yourself ready? I, this is really interesting. I'm really glad you asked me that, actually, because um, a lot of people think working at home, they'll get distracted by watching TV or something, but mm. we're both of us uh, are incredibly disciplined. So I will get up at eight to half eight every day i'll have black coffee i will start writing at about half nine after i've cooked some breakfast uh, well i'll write all the way through um until around between two and three yeah. we'll go out for a walk between two and three which will last until about four half four i'll make dinner for us at that point uh uh then i at six o'clock i'll have a nap for half an hour right i'm an old man, I'm an old man. <laughs> and um <laughs> And then I will write from about half six through to up to 11, half 11. Uh, so all that time I'll be doing all the different things that I do. Uh, because I, we haven't talked about this, but I do. I write for, um, uh, and I do the social media for a, a rock magazine called Rock Candy. Oh, yeah. And uh, which is uh, the editor of which is Howard from Football 365. Right. So it all goes around. It's all in a beautiful uh, kind of yin and yang thing. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I will do all of that. And that will be my day. Now, if, because we're uh, both a bit, crazy uh we find if we don't follow a routine it it makes us dysfunctional we can't really work so for example if we go for a walk in the morning that throws the rest of the day off <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy but it is how we are don't but we actually don't did um uh, an asperger's test and she she rated 155 out of 200 right and i said and I did it. I was 102. Right. I don't know how clinical it is, you know, how, how accurate it is. But I said, that seems about right. You know, we need things to be in their place. Yeah. Uh, but, but you see, I think once you are like that, once you are, once you create a skeleton uh, for every day, then you can hang your life on that. Mm. Uh, without it, it's just too free, free floating. Yeah. So I, uh, I have the same routine. Really matters yeah. for all creativity without it i can't i can't work i have to have a routine in which to do it so but yeah it's a long day but yeah. i enjoy it I love it. and do you always write at the same desk or in the same seat yeah i always write in the same chair um on the same laptop which now has a hole in the space bar because i've typed so many words on it <laughs> five years worth of typing on a on a on a on this and it's just knackered now but uh yeah so i do everything the same i wear uh, the same clothes virtually every day. Uh, <laughs> listen, uh, everything is. Un you see, when you're creating things which doesn't exist before you do them, you need everything else to be the same. Yeah. So that you then, if everything's in ferment around you, you it's that that's too distracting. You need to be able to put that all to bed and then do all the weird stuff in your head. You know, yeah. that's how I feel about it anyway. <laughs> Amazing. I've heard that from another writer as well. Actually, something like you know everything else. Uh, just has to be yeah it, none of it none of it matters you just see so the way way around that is to have the same breakfast wear the same clothes do this have the same routine yeah. so that you just concentrate solely on what it is you're creating 
That's absolutely. But the, the one thing that I, a lot of people tell me uh, who are writers is they write in the quiet, mm. in silence. I can't do that. I have to have music on all the time. So I am writing with, during the day with either the radio on or playing records. And the evening, I almost always will listen to football radio. So I'll always listen to Five Live or Talk Sport, right. uh, whether it's a live game or a discussion. <laughs> and I also download loads of podcasts as well, football podcasts. So I have those. And I can write while they're talking. So, right. <laughs> yeah, so I always I always have to have some. I won't ever write in the in silence at all. That's interesting. So, Second yeah. question then. Um what when you look back at everything is the one thing that you're sort of most proud of that you you know the one thing that you did or the one uh yeah. achievement of the whole lot that you think yeah that was that's the one that where i really sort of nailed it or feel most proud to have been involved in oh that's so difficult as i said when i got that william hill uh, long list in 2010 for we all the five yeah that was such a significant moment in my writing life such and i'm incredibly proud of that and then winning the ffsf the fsf um last year of uh, with football this right that was brilliant as well mm. so really really proud of that and i was i was nominated for best writer as well which I was told I'd only just lost out to Barney Roney, who was brilliant. So that's yeah. no disgrace in that. Yeah, no disgrace um, there. But I think, yeah, I think if I had to, I, 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 if I had to, I would say it was pies. Yeah, it would say it was getting on the William Hill. Just because that changed how I felt about who I was. Yeah. Which isn't to say that there hasn't been other lots of great high points um, and won't be more in the future. I'm in the process of trying to make movies out of the books. Right. I've got uh, somebody interested in. in um, producing them i've got to find a screenwriter hmm. to rewrite the books it's not not a talent i had so i'm hoping for greater peaks yet right but yeah i mean the william hills definitely it. yeah yeah and i guess as you said did that start to help to to remove that imposter syndrome totally hmm. it, that broke the ice on it really yeah. it didn't remove the ice but it shattered it it, it had once been permafrost <laughs> and, and poured out in the global warming of my literary imagination <laughs> um uh, yeah it definitely did it made such a difference because until that point it did feel as though i was just as i, I said before as i was just scamming it and then the idea that people had sat quietly in a room and read my books and thought this is really good <laughs> this is one of the best things i've read all year yeah that's just come on that's brilliant uh, but also i must say that um the other thing that's been absolutely fantastic was when I did those first three uh, Nick Gaiman novels, and the fact that so many people um, just bought them immediately and read them and loved them and were getting in touch with me and tell me that wasn't just sort of one thing, that was just like a, that whole project. Hmm. Um, that was another amazing thing. And that actually was the thing which finally put that imposter syndrome thing to bed. Because um, I, I think I, I was I, I did the first book event I ever did was at Martin Library, I think, in Middlesbrough. Hmm. And uh, I was at Ackham Library. And um, about 80 odd people turned up and i'm like who i thought what have you come here for i've come here about your book i thought oh you know and then i suddenly thought well if i'm not a writer who the hell is a writer yeah. you know i've got people turned up to hear me talk about my books i've written three books i've been on a, a short list uh, of the sports book of the year so i i must be a writer yeah. so yeah if it's not me i don't know who it is you know? <laughs> um, but it's funny that it should take so long isn't it yeah you know? I don't know. Do you feel like that when you're doing radio stuff? Do you feel as though 
like if you're doing uh, Wake Up to Money or something like that, yeah. do you feel like, yeah, man, I'm like the financial broadcaster with a capital <laughs> letter? You just think, someone's going to find me out in a minute. I don't know anything about it's this. definitely the latter, yeah, definitely. Because <laughs> I guess, though, in, in some ways, because of with um, with the Five Live stuff that I've done, it's all been very gradual. So, you know, I've worked there for sort of, well, nearly eight years now. So, you know, I've st- I started off as a producer, then did a little bit of on-air stuff, then did a little bit more, then, you know, so it's grown very sort of incrementally to the point where now I'm doing it more regularly. It feels like it, it wasn't, it was it was scary the first time doing it, but each, it's been a sort of incremental steps. But yeah, I do still clear, definitely feel like, yeah, well, surely this, this isn't right. Why am I sitting in this chair? That is the, yeah. the strangest thing about it is actually, is it's almost just the chair. So when, uh, ah. when I started, you know, I'd be a producer and I'd be producing Wake Up To Money and I'd be sitting the other side of the glass um, and sort of just, watching the presenter or working with the presenter and wondering how the hell they did what they were doing. And then it was when I did wake up to money for the first time and I realised that I was the one then in that chair looking through the glass. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very strange thing and yeah. not feeling that necessarily I was the right person to be doing it, but I was in the chair then, so I had to do it. Well, somebody once said to me, people who believe in themselves are absolutely insufferable. <laughs> and I kind of understood what I mean. You know, people yeah. think they're really good. They're not the people you want to know, are they? No. Yeah. I know what I, you mean. I feel like you get people saying, oh, yeah, I've written this fantastic thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't, uh, maybe it's a northern thing, that, but it's yeah. a chiming. I'm, I'm, I was often say I'm brought up, I'm conditioned for failure, yeah. not for success. So when people are complimentary, which is obviously great, you want people to be complimentary. Yeah. But I kind of like, oh, it feels a bit weird, don't like it, don't like it. Yeah. It's like biting a paw, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Whereas I know people exactly just what you mean. Off, I'm completely able to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, a good, it's a good uh, initial setup, isn't it? That if you're not expecting uh, praise, then you probably... Yeah. Uh, you probably you're not going to be disappointed. Yeah, I mean, just uh, it is funny though because uh, I don't know. I, get that. I don't know if it's a northern thing or it's a class thing. It's probably a class thing, really. But yeah, we're brought up to really not expect much. Hmm. So when somebody comes along like a, a William Hill nomination or something like that, then it feels like that's where the imposter thing is. That like you go, what me? Me? Are you sure about that? It's me. You know me. <laughs> Scumbag me. You know? <laughs> But uh, I, I think if you if you grew to think that this was your right, then you would be insufferable, really, wouldn't yeah. you? So yeah. probably for the best, really. Definitely. There is definitely sides to all of that kind of I'm not good enough kind of syndrome, and in, in that yeah. it makes you work hard. I take none of it for granted at all, yeah. um, and I always think, well, uh, you know, I've got it. And, and the more success that you get, and the more that people like you, the more pressure it puts on you to keep the standards up as well. Yeah. You know, I think that's that's so that's the, the upside of it, really. Yeah, absolutely. All right, final question then: What are you enjoying right now? So, whether it's a book that you're reading or music that you've been listening to this morning, yeah. or something you watch on telly, what have you? What are you really enjoying, like consuming? That's creative right now. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, I would have to go back to music and to record. I just bought a. Um, thing called Humble Pie Greatest Bootlegs Volume 1 and it's uh, Humble Pie were a rock band in the 70s and uh, oh, one of my favourites and uh, someone's just released a load of live recordings which are very lo-fi they obviously literally were bootlegs yeah. um, but uh, Steve Marriott is the singer for them and to hear him in any 
Pontexis were my favourites, and I think he just throws it all out on the stage, leaves it all on the stage. So I was listening to that last night and thinking how brilliant that was. And uh, so rock and roll will always be, you know, in my lifeblood, really. And if I had to take anything, I would take the rock and roll before I would take football. You know, to Desert yeah. Island, I'd take, I'd take rock and roll rather than a football. And um, so it tends to be that which I always gravitate back towards. That being said, one of my great joys that I always listen to uh, in life is Five Lives football commentaries yeah. and commentators. And I just love them. I just think they're like family to me now. Yeah. I, was, I was lucky enough to meet John Murray and a few others, Darren Fletcher, um, at, uh, at the awards ceremony down in London. And uh, it was, they're like, not, not like rock stars wouldn't be the right thing, but they're just people who I really connect to yeah. and, uh, and who I really form part of that skeleton of my life that is so important yeah um so yeah i always enjoy listening to that i love i love speech radio generally um i listen to radio 4 a lot as well yeah so it's um yeah so my my go-to uh creative thing would always be uh music either past or present brilliant all right john well it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you so much uh, for giving up your time oh, to talk great. to the pod I, i've really enjoyed it it's very uh, kind of you to um so want to even um, speak to me, really. So, you know, I'm, not, I'm not sure what I've done to deserve it, but it's been a pleasure talking to you. All right, it's been um, an absolute pleasure. It, Thank you. The, the, the imposter syndrome always kicks in in the end, you see. So you're like, what, you want to talk to me? <laughs> me, I'm a scumbag. <laughs> yes, anyway, but nice speaking to you anyway, man. So that was John Nicholson. Uh, thanks to John for giving up his time uh, during his day. As we heard, he likes routine in his day so i'm very grateful to him and i thanked him afterwards for giving up his time uh during uh, his day really love talking to him it's always nice when you are a fan of someone and their work and they turn out to be uh really kind and interesting and great to talk to so a real pleasure to talk to him hope you enjoyed listening um as i said this is the last episode for a while I hope uh, you liked it and I hope you liked all the episodes so far. I'd love to hear from any of you. I'll still be looking at emails and Twitter, uh, obviously, because I'm addicted to modern technology. Uh, but if you want to get in touch, please do creativeforcespod at gmail.com or at creativeforcesp or Guy Kilty on Twitter. Uh, there's also a Facebook page which you can find. But do get in touch. I'd love to hear feedback. If you can like and subscribe or whatever you do in your podcast app, I'm really, really grateful. So yeah, thanks again. I will speak to you in a few weeks, a few months, when the podcast is back, hopefully with a, a brand new bunch of really interesting interviewees. So yeah, speak to you then. <laughs>